Hello, friend, and welcome to the Feeling Full Podcast. I should actually say welcome back. You know, it's been a while since I've shared anything on this show. You know, about a year and a half ago, I kind of put things on pause, but I've been sitting on this one interview that I really wanted to release that didn't make it out before I put things on pause. And it's with none other than Gay Hendricks. You may have heard of him before, maybe on this show or another show. He's an incredible, inspiring guy. And today he's talking about The Genius Zone, his latest book, and some of the ideas that he shares in there. It's been really powerful for me, and I hope you enjoy and take some great things away from this conversation as well. Hope you're doing well. Here's Gay Hendricks. Yep, you're looking at uh, the mellow version of Gay Hendricks here today. I'm freshly back from Maui. My wife and I, Katie, were um, out celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. So, and congratulations on your new book, The Genius Zone. I thoroughly loved it. The few parts I started telling you before the call that I really loved and just, you know, obviously the um, commitment and recommitment part, but also the idea of control. I think that is a really interesting, I guess you have a great frame of thinking about control. I guess before control, I would say the unhappiness that one experiences when they're trying to control a situation that is either out of their control or trying to control the way someone feels about them or feels about us, right? Yes. That, um, what do you call it? The genius? The genius move. Yes. The genius move. Yes. That's been really helpful to me. But I think we're, you know, just to kind of start at the top, maybe we can just talk about the genius zone, which evolved to the genius spiral and 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 what that is for people who haven't experienced your 40-some books that you've, you've written over the years. <laughs> you haven't read my 40 books? Shame on you. Uh, well, the big leap came out about 12 years ago and has been widely adopted by personal growth enthusiasts and entrepreneurs uh, because of two big concepts in it. One concept is the upper limit problem, which is our tendency as human beings to sabotage ourselves unconsciously when things are going well. And I first noticed the upper limit problem 50 years ago. People ask me how long it took me to write The Big Leap. And I said, well, I wrote it in a year, but it took me 50 years to think about it because I had my first big upper limit problem that I can vividly remember when I was 24 years old. I think in our past conversations, you know that I struggled with childhood obesity all the way from babyhood up through junior high and then on through high school and then on into college. And by the age of 24, I weighed more than 300 pounds. Within a year, I would be less than 200 pounds. But what happened during that year was I had a gigantic wake-up experience where I really saw how I was creating my 120 extra pounds and what I could do to make it disappear. And so I think I talked in earlier episodes about the technology I used, which I, I would eat every bite of food or I would choose every bite of food with the question, is this going to feed my new spirit self or my old 300 pound self? Because I had awakened to the feeling of pure consciousness in me, what I call pure consciousness, which was a kind of the first spiritual experience I remember having in my life where it was a kind of a, it was different than the religion that I'd grown up around. It was an actual 
feeling of spirit and consciousness in my body and mind. And so it was unmistakable. It was like one moment it was dark and the next moment it was light. You know, it was a quantum transformation like that. But then what happened, I started losing weight right away and I lost 35 pounds the first month, just making choices based on, will this feed my spirit or my old body? And I ate a whole bunch of new things, fruits and vegetables that I had never paid any attention to. But my goal was to not eat any of the old stuff that had made me weigh 320 pounds. And so within the first month, I dropped about 35 pounds and I was feeling fantastic. You know, uh, I was still very obese. I mean, at 295 pounds is still uh, quite portly, but it was definitely different than 320 pounds. I dropped a couple of pant sizes. So I was feeling on top of the world. And I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I looked to my left, I was passing an ice cream shop. And I looked to my left, and there was a family of four eating this gigantic banana split with three flavors of ice cream and lots of different sauces on it and whipped cream and cherries and everything. And I just lost it. I went inside and ordered one of them for myself. And boy, talk about an upper limit problem. For about 20 or 30 minutes, I felt high as a kite after I ate all that sugar and everything. Yeah. And then about 20 minutes after that, I was still walking down. Later on, I was walking down the street in Cambridge. And I got hit by the biggest stomach ache I'd ever felt in my life. As a matter of fact, I doubled over and I had my head between my legs right there on the sidewalk in Cambridge. And people were saying, are, are you OK? Are you OK? And uh, all I could do was groan because after this month or so of purity, it was like dumping in a, a load of toxicity into my you know, kind of purified body. Well, that was the first big boomer of an upper limit problem I ever remember happening. But it happened over and over again. Like after a couple more weeks, I'd get back on it. And here's where I learned something really important. And that is that commitment is really important, but recommitment is off the scale important because I learned that if I fell off the wagon, so to speak, and ate something that wasn't good for me or went on a binge for a day or two, I learned just to get back on the wagon again and make not make a big drama out of it because that's where I began, oh, I have an upper limit problem. I can only stand so much good feeling and then I torpedo it all. I sabotage myself. Or in my job, I was, I was a teacher and a counselor at a school for delinquent boys. And when I say counselor, don't picture me sitting in an office with uh, uh, my clients uh, sitting in a chair, unburdening themselves. I was really the dormitory supervisor of 24 delinquent boys. And so if they were ever in my office, they were there reluctantly. And so I was more of a, a wrangler than I was a therapist. But it got me interested in the field of working with people. But I would get along well in my work for a week or so, and then something would happen and we'd get into some kind of a turmoil. So I realized that this upper limit problem goes across all sorts of different 
fields and particularly in your own personal relationships. You know, my beloved and I would get along fine for a few days, five days or so, and then somebody would criticize and we'd get into a downward spiral of uh, conflict. So think of the upper limit problem as something that we're pretty much born with and we need to deal with it later on. Just to interject here for a second, the the idea of recommitment kind of goes hand in hand with the upper limit problem because the upper limit problem comes along kind of like in your story where you ate the Sunday ice cream and you, right, you, fa- you, you, you fall for a moment, but the idea of, and, and therefore the kind of hitting the wall, the upper limit problem, and then you use recommitment as a way to get past it, as a tool to get past it. And I would be, I would be really interested. And I think people listening can really benefit from just diving into a little deeper why recommitment is more important. It's almost more important than commitment. Yes. It's because we're always going to be wandering off what I would do is until I learned about recommitment was I would start on my diet, I would get back on the wagon, and then I would like have a stick of gum, 10 calories. And then my mind would say, oh, because you've had the stick of gum, go ahead and eat a whole box of cookies. You know, I would kind of slide down that path to extremism very quickly. And what I learned was, Uh, Oh, I had this image come into my mind on an airplane. I realized that the automatic pilot was always drifting off course and recorrecting. It was always recommitting. That was my big insight. I was on an airplane somewhere. And I realized that, in fact, I uh, asked the pilot later, how many times a minute does the automatic pilot make corrections and recommit? And I've forgotten the number, but it was kind of an astounding number, you know, like hundreds or thousands of times a minute. It's making these tiny recommitments because it's always drifting off. And that's what we need to know as human beings is we will always have a tendency to wander off or drift off. But what we need is a simple technology of returning to our key purpose. And that is so important not to make a big drama out of wandering off. You know, like I have a friend who's in a 12-step program and they say the same thing, you know, just get back on the horse. You're going to fall off the horse probably at some point. Just get back on the horse. And it's the same thing when my daughter then, you know, five or six years old, uh, for her birthday, she wanted a horse riding lesson. And she was getting fascinated by horses, which she continued to be fascinated by, by for the next 10 years or so which was really great for her. But uh, I was somewhat reluctant because I was afraid she would fall off. And the trainer, who was this lovely lady, said, oh, don't worry, she's going to fall off. (laughs) And and I said, oh, okay. And she said, don't make a big deal out of it. 99 times out of 100, it's not a big deal. You just put the person back on the horse and away they go again. And it was true. You know, Amanda took off on the horse with the trainer kind of trotting along beside her, walking along beside her. And once they got into a little bit of a trot, Amanda promptly fell off. And the teacher explained it. It's like skiing. She said, unless they fall off, they're not going to learn how to stay on. And it scared me as a dad. I jumped out of my skin every time she would fall off. But after four or five times, she was confidently sitting on the back of the horse and she's Mm. trotting along. And, 
you know, she came home, she needed to take a hot bath and get a good night's sleep, but she wasn't banged up by the situation. So it's recommitment that will really get you to the job. The way I like to put it is the automatic pilot gets you to your destination by being wrong most of the time and wow. because it knows how to recommit. That's a, I like that analogy. I like the airplane analogy too. I think it's really, it puts it, puts it in perspective. So let's talk about the other theme here, which is the zone of genius. From what I understand, the zone of genius, and correct me if, I'm, if I don't get this right, the zone of genius is when we're doing something that we love to do, we lose track of time, and something that we're, we're really good at. Is that what you say it's a, an accurate description of the zone of genius? Yes, that's a, a good bit of it. And I would add okay. a couple of other dimensions to it also. Please, please. How to know when you're in your genius zone, first of all, is you're doing something you love to do. That's the absolute crucial key component. And the way to find your genius zone is to find what you most love to do, like about the job you're in or throughout your life. What have you most loved to do? And the other dimension is what makes the biggest contribution to the world around you. That second part, the more I work with genius people, the more I see that genius has two components, an inner component and an outer component. The inner component is you're doing something that you love to do where you can lose track of time and uh, you could do it all day long and you didn't, wouldn't get tired and you could do it all day long and you'd forget about eating sometimes. I know that happens to me. You know, I'll be in the middle of my writing <laughs> sweet spot zone and my wife will come in and say, hey, it's time for lunch, you know, and I'll realize, oh, yeah, I've been hungry for an hour and haven't even realized it. You know, that's a good way to know you're in your genius zone. The other way to know is that you're doing something that has the potential of enriching other people's lives. Something about your genius contributes to other people. The more I work with genius people now and helping people get into their genius zone, the more I see that the happiest people are those that are occupying their genius in a way that makes some kind of contribution to other people. And like one of my mentors, Abraham Maslow, used to say, it doesn't matter if your genius is a good soup or a good symphony. It doesn't really matter. It's whatever has the capacity to move you and surprise you. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting way to think about it. So it's something that you get lost in. It's something as well that benefits the world at large and benefits other people. And I'm curious, so how does one go about discovering the zone of genius? Because it's something that I've thought about a lot through your books, especially. And I've gone through all the exercises and come up with the lists, you know, to figure out what I'm really good at when I, you know, maybe from when I was younger even. And, you know, mm -hmm. th there's actually been one theme. I'd be happy to share it with you if this can be helpful. Maybe we can unpack this a bit. But sure. the theme is like, as a kid, I was always really like, I was that kid selling, can you know, candy out of my locker, at, you know, in sixth or seventh grade. I always knew how to, you're, you too, you're pointing at yourself. Oh, you too, totally. So. To me, that was fun. Like it was fun. Like I loved the idea of buying and selling and 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 providing value to people and like being in relationship and the dance of like you know that that to me that there's a, there was a thrill in it all, right? It's being able to spot opportunities. And I think in my you know business career over the last you know decade plus, you know I'm really good at like spotting opportunities, following patterns, and knowing how to 
bring value to others through his opportunities. How do I figure out what my zone of genius is? I mean, I love doing this interview with you and I love having this, these, our conversations always really excite me too. So it's like, but I also love that, that the getting in that energy of buying and selling and spotting deals and that arena. So I don't know. That's just a lot of stuff I'm throwing at you. <laughs> well, first of all, you and I are brothers from two different mothers because from <laughs> the time I could think practically, I, when I was in the fifth grade, I had a little egg business. And then my big breakthrough, my next door neighbor where I grew up in Florida, there was a lot of retirees, uh, especially Jewish retirees in my neighborhood. My next door neighbor, Mr. Lewin, Sam Lewin, was a watermelon broker and actually had another business as a Christmas tree broker. And he spent half the year up in Long Island and half the year down in his uh, house in Florida, my next door neighbor. And so when I was in the fifth grade, 10 years old, I got a watermelon idea. And so I bought four watermelons from Mr. Lewin. He was a, such a great guy. You know, he walked across Russia to get away from Cossacks and he had a million stories in him. And, but he also loved the idea of this little entrepreneurial guy because his kids were all grown and they were doctors and lawyers. They didn't want to have anything to do with <laughs> watermelons and Christmas trees, you know? And so here was this 10 year old kid pumping him for information about how does business work and how does the watermelon business work and everything. So to make a long story short, I bought four watermelons for 15 cents a piece from Mr. Lewin, who made me a Cracker Jack deal, bless his heart. And so I took my watermelons down to the highway and all day long, I would stand there and lift watermelon high and everything. And I sold one watermelon. I had to lug them all back up the hill because I was selling them for 25 cents a piece for a whole watermelon. Then I had my Cracker Jack marketing idea. The next day, I sliced them into eight pieces and I held a beautiful looking piece of a watermelon up as the cap. And I sold my first melon like in 10 minutes from people stopping. And so I sliced up my next melon and sliced up my next melon. I had to go back up the hill to Mr. Lewin's house to get watermelons with my wagon uh, uh, probably four or five times. And he had a whole garage full of them. And so um, I was able to get pretty much unlimited watermelons. But here's the magic number, more than high. I ended up the day with three, $3.75 worth of money mostly nickels because I charged a nickel a slice. And man, I thought I was in John D. Rockefeller's league to actually come up with something that we hatch out of our own minds that serves other people. And so I'm the same way you are. I love to have this kind of conversation with you. This, you know, I it doesn't matter to me. I've had it on Oprah several times, and I've had it with the guy next to me on the airplane seat, and uh, I'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning to have it in Dublin, Ireland. But it turns me on to actually tune into something that comes out of my genius zone that can actually serve other people. Like to me, the fact that, you know, it takes me a year to write a book, let's say. But then at the end of that time, you know, like with the big leap, millions of people around the world can take something that they can hold in their own hands that summarizes 50 years of my experience, as does the genius zone. And then they can get that concentrated wisdom without having to go through the ups and downs of 50 years of my experience. And so I think it's a, a wonderful system we have for transmitting information. And now with podcasts and 
Oprah, well, she's not on anymore um, every day, but with folks like that that are taking the message out to the hinterlands, it's really quite an amazing time to be alive. It really is. And I guess I just want to unpack this a bit with the, the, the finding the zone of genius, because it sounds like, you know, we share that, you know, that buying and selling and creating some an idea from your mind and being able to create value and make money off it. And as well, it sounds like you also, when you're, when you're writing, you also are in your zone of genius. I guess I'm asking you personally, is there like a, what's the process? If you are coaching me, what would the process for me to uncover my zone of genius? Maybe that can be helpful. Well, personally, selfishly to me and maybe other people's listening in their own, in their own process. Yes. If you were sitting in my office with me and this was our first time doing it, I'd first, after I explained what the genius zone is, I'd ask you to make a commitment and the commitment would go something like this. I commit to enjoying more and more of my natural genius every day. I commit to enjoying more and more of my natural genius every day. Join me in saying that. I, I commit, commit to, to enjoying, enjoying more, more and more of my genius of my genius every, every single day. Every single day. And just tune into that now and find out if you get a whole body yes from that commitment, is that something you want to do in your heart and mind? I would say I'm like 90% there. There's something, okay, that, there's something that's kind of pushing down a little bit on me. Yes. That's interesting that you should mention that, Mordecai, because yesterday I was working with a, a, a well-known person who kind of has expressed a lot of his genius, but he could feel, as we tuned in, he could feel down at the very center of himself, like two tight bands of anxiety and, oh, sadness that sort of felt like depression, that there were these kind of crystallized bands of that around the center of himself. And I think that's a common experience that when you go down deep in yourself, you find some old restrictions mm. or constrictions that have been there. Maybe you even got born with them through a lineage. I know I did. I grew up in the deep South in central Florida from a family that had come down there directly out after the, after having lost the civil war. And so I come from generations of people that are hardy survivors and refugees and kind of had to carve a home out of the jungle in Florida. And then three generations later, my mother is the mayor of her city. You know, so it's that kind of long-term story of defeat and then gradual emergence and a lot, a lot, a lot of suffering and hard work to get to a point where, you know, my grandfather was a laborer, my mother was the mayor, and now I'm a you know, well-known author and person who goes around talking like this. <laughs> and, uh, and that's an amazing story. And yet, in a way, it's everybody's story because we come through these gates of life that you know you come through and 
you come in with a lot of anxiety in your body. Like I was born during the Second World War, at the end of the Second World War, when my mother literally start, was starving. She went from 120 pounds down to 89 pounds while she was pregnant with me. And that's what they think kind of turned my hormones upside down. So as soon as I came out and started eating, I gained weight at an alarming rate. And I was the only fat person in a skinny person family. So it really stood out. So, but whatever the reason for it, whether it's genetic or something that happens, a stress point in your life, we've all got the same issue in a way. We've got this genius zone inside us and we've got to clear away whatever's in the way of that. And the only way I know how to do that is to start with a heartfelt commitment. I always tell my students that the longest, most important journey they will ever make is 12 inches from their head down to their heart, to connect up your head and your heart. And so that's what this commitment represents. I commit to bringing forth more and more of my genius every day of my life. So say that again in your own words, uh, maybe not mine, but uh, just I commit. I commit to bringing forth my genius more and more every single day of my life. Yes. And tune in. Can you get more of a whole body yes to that? Let me try it one more time. I commit to living in my zone of genius more and more every single day of my life. I definitely felt the more of this last time. Good. Take a few breaths with that. Take your mind out of your body for a moment. I mean, take your body, take your mind out of your mind and put it in your body. <laughs> I knew there were words somewhere out there for this. Yeah. So drop down into your body and just take a few big, easy breaths. Right now, you are in your genius zone, right? By in this conversation? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I, I would. Well, that's where you are, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're here right now, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm definitely enjoying it. I definitely love these conversations. I do it because I love it. No other, there's no other okay, reason. Okay, so you're doing something you love. Yeah. You're doing something you love yes. right now. Yes. Okay, good. You're in your genius zone right now. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. I just want you to acknowledge that ah. and get a sense of being at ease mm. by saying you're in your genius zone. I'm in my genius zone. Mm. Yeah, you're in your genius zone. And the reason we know that is because you could do a lot of this and you wouldn't get tired. You could do a bunch of these calls a day or several anyway, and you wouldn't get tired because you're doing something you love to do. Right. And I guess there's another element that I guess is in that buying and selling, negotiating world, which is like, you know, finding these convert, finding people like yourself. I mean, you're one of a kind, but people that are, have a great thing to teach or offer to my audience and the world that is, there's an art to that, right? You can't just, is not, I can't just dial 1-800-GAY-HENDRICKS and, and, and have you on the show. There's, a, there's an art to doing that. And I guess that kind of talks to my quote-unquote hustle and my ability to have these conversations even. So it's like those two things together may be my zone of genius. Yes. Well, I love that. And we haven't touched on the second one yet, the um, buying and selling, negotiating I love that too. That's just in my blood. And I, not necessarily the standpoint of 
haggling or anything like that. It's just finding ways to make something work that doesn't ordinarily work and make it work better. Like I just got through an exhilarating process of assisting an entrepreneur sell a business that he wanted to sell for $50 million. And we did a little expansion work and we eventually got $54 million for it as he got willing to take a bigger leap. Yeah. And so that's a good example of often where I come in and work with people is finding an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur calls me that's having, that has a great product, but hasn't learned to kind of go whoosh and make it really big. And so I've got three or four of those now that I'm uh, working with, and I get a lot of enjoyment out of that to, uh, to build something. I made my first fortune from uh, book royalties and my second one in the stock market. And one of the things I made one of my biggest chunks of my stock market fortune from was a company called software.com back during the dot-com era that made an algorithm, you know, something that didn't really weigh anything. It was an algorithm. But what the algorithm did was make email work a lot better. Uh, you're probably too young to remember this, but there was a time when you, if you tried to send big attachments through the email, it would crash your whole system. And so software.com found a new way of storage of information within emails to make it possible to. Anyway, it went from $3 a stock up to when I sold it $95 a stock. Now, I've done big leap work on myself for a long time. And I think that's what helped us for the first time. You know, there were probably 50 people the year we got on Oprah and sold all those books, uh, Conscious Loving, back uh, 30 years ago. There were probably 50 other people that had books out that year. But I did a lot of systematic work every day on opening my ability to receive. And here's something I want to draw a big red circle around and highlight to everybody that a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are already pretty darn good at giving, but not as good at receiving. And I know that from having worked up close and personal now with 25,000 live human beings and close to 5,000 couples now, um, not virtually, but actually in person. And now we're able to reach many more virtually. But uh, in the early days, it was get 50 people in a room for a relationship workshop. And my wife and I, during the 1990s, put on uh, 2 million frequent flyer miles going around the world 37 times teaching relationship seminars. Now we invite people to come here or do them uh, virtually. Mm -hmm. We're uh, kind of burnt out on traveling. But I mentioned that because if you want to live in your zone of genius, you've got to make a commitment to it that's big enough to get through all the ups and downs. And that's why I think a big open-hearted commitment to opening up and enjoying more of your genius every day is the powerful place to start and the place to come back to when you fall off the wagon or wander off the path. And believe me, you're a human being just like I am. We almost have a built-in tendency towards self-sabotage. And so we need to do some conscious work to get beyond that. And commitment is the place to start. What are the other things that help us get into the zone of genius? So if we start with the commitment. I'm saying I'm committed to living there every single day. And I'm going to do things that help me get in that space every single day. And then what? Well, one thing 
then a lot of the work in the new Genius Zone book is about how to stay in the zone of genius. The big leap is kind of how like the goldfish right. on the cover, right. you know, the leap into the Genius Zone. But the big leap, the successor, uh, the sequel to the big leap, the Genius Zone, comes out of an image. I live in an area here in California where you can almost always look up in the sky and see hawks flying around. They love this mountain valley that I live in. And I saw, and this also happened on my wedding day with Katie, 40 years ago when we got married, some hawks flew above us as we were saying our vows to each other. It's one oh, wow. of the sweet moments of my whole existence. But if you notice a hawk as it's soaring in the air and flying around with the wind currents, it's not flapping its wings and exerting any effort. It almost looks like it's still. But the reason it looks so still, it's doing the equivalent of the automatic pilot. It's making a thousand calculations a minute about wind currents and you know where to go to preserve my energy and how to stay up here the longest. And you know it's a food issue from them. They can spot a mouse from 1,500 feet in the air. So we can learn from that in the following way, by asking ourselves, what are the key and easiest adjustments we can make to stay in our genius zone? And one of the big ones that I lay out in the book is to notice when you're stuck, when you feel stuck or confused about something or worried about something. It is almost always because you're trying to control something that's not within your power to control. One of the most important moves you can make in life is to spot when you're trying to control something that's uncontrollable, like whether somebody likes you or not, or what you're going to be doing today a year from now. You know, there's a lot of things in life that are controllable, but a huge bit of it is not controllable. And learning to spot those moments and letting go of control in those moments helps you live in your genius zone. It's your move that the hawk makes to stay up in the air like that. So what's the process to discover? Because I love this idea of like the unhappiness is coming from our desire to control out of controllable events. What's the process? I know you say you have a, you have a technique called the, the, the genius move that helps people actually stay up in the air like the hawk you're describing. Yes. Maybe we can talk about that process a bit. The key part of the process is to notice when you're feeling stuck. Like, what are your symptoms of feeling stuck? Is it an off-center feeling in your body? Or is it a bunch of darting thoughts in your mind and a sense of confusion? Or is it the experience of anxiety in your belly? Like, let me just ask you, how do you tell when you're stuck or feeling off-center? Hmm. I would say when I catch myself ruminating about something, like I'll catch myself, you know, trying to solve something, there's like a feeling of like a heavy weight and I'll, my, my brain will just go on and on and on about a scenario, either that happened or I'm projecting something is going to happen and therefore find myself in this like a loop of a painful loop. That's one way. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about because when that happens, when you're ruminating on that, you're usually either ruminating about something in the past that didn't go the way you wanted it or created pain, or you're constructing some scenario of the future that's based on the pain of something in the past. 
And both of those, if you look at both the past and the future, both of them are examples of things that you have no control over. The past, you obviously have no control over because it's already happened. And what your mind is doing is it's recycling that old experience in hopes that you can change the outcome. And believe me, we cannot change the outcome. It was the way it was. The only way to get the rumination quieted down is to deeply experience and ultimately accept and love the feelings that are underneath that. Like, for example, if the thing that happened in your past was your girlfriend dumped you, and I have a memory of mine dumping me when I was 19, and she was my high school sweetheart, and I thought we were always going to be together, but she didn't feel that way. And so she moved on when I was 19. And I remember at the time wondering, would I ever find any kind of love in my life again? I felt so stuck out of that. And interestingly enough, I think I repeated patterns out of that pain well up into my 30s until I met Katie. And I think my old relationships in my 20s were a lot based on avoiding the pain that that first relationship had cost me. So what that meant is I never really went deep with anybody. And I remember many women during my 20s saying, you never share anything about your feelings or you never talk about anything about yourself. And I'd usually make a joke about, oh, there's not much to talk about, you know, but it was an act of defensiveness on my part, trying to make sure I never felt the intensity of that early pain again. And that's how our minds work. It'll always be trying to go back into the past and change the outcome until you turn off that machinery. And it takes some work. You know, you have to come up against things you cannot control 58 dozen times until on the 59th when you say, oh, okay, that's interesting. I no longer ruminate the past about the past anymore. And I no longer ruminate about the future anymore. So do the work and it will take care of itself. It just takes a little bit of diligence and daily commitment. That's why I want to make everybody uh, aware of the tendency to fall off the wagon and wander off the path. And uh, especially in the area of dieting and getting a healthy body, it's uh, we all need some new techniques about how to stay in our genius zone around taking care of our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm a little curious about what about controlling things that you can control, but you're trying to control an outcome, like a desired outcome? Well, yes. Let's say you're ruminating about somebody not liking you, somebody that you know, and you know that you wish they'd call you more often or something like that. Well, the obvious facts are you cannot control the feelings of another person. You can do things that might contribute to them feeling more positively about you, but those are things you can do in the now, not things that you would have to do in the future. So, for example, if you're concerned about somebody, how they feel about you, the right now thing to do is to pick up the phone and call them and say, I've had some concerns in my mind about uh, how you feel about me. I wonder if you would have a couple of minutes to talk about that because I keep creating scenarios in your mind that you don't like me. Those moments, what I call 10-second sweaty conversations, are the stuff of a good life. Sometimes what we tell people here, there's no marital problem or relationship 
problem that can't be cured with a 10-minute sweaty conversation. But their life is full of these 10-second sweaty conversations that are a little bit challenging to have to be transparent, like, hey, I wonder if you like me. That's a very transparent thing to do, but that makes life move very, very fast. Mm, Awesome. Well, hey, you know, I'm going to let you go then because I have a lot of questions and um, I'm sure we can talk for a long time. But for people listening who are more curious about what we're talking about here, I would highly recommend picking up a book, um, Gay's latest book called The Genius Zone, where Gay talks all about these topics. And I guess, Gay, is there any um, closing remarks you want to make to anybody listening here? Yes. um, Put a big circle around something I said during our conversation together, which is that to balance out the giving you do with increasing your ability to receive just in general in the world. And also keep your attention on how much time you're spending every day in your genius zone. The goal is to spend almost 100% of your time in your genius zone. When I started, I was spending about 10% of my time in my genius zone. It took me probably 10 to 15 years to get up to 70 or 80%. But now, in this century, I've spent this entire century doing only things Mm. that I love to do. And it looks good and it feels good. Yes. Well, it's an inspiration. You're an inspiration for all of us, Gay. Thank you so much for coming on to the show again and sharing all, all your wisdom. It's, um, it's been really beneficial in my life. And I know many others that have been um, inspired by your work as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for spreading the word and uh, continue living in your genius zone. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to. And I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.